Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What makes someone want to be a criminal defense attorney for Donald Trump? After all, he has a history of not paying his legal bills. He famously defies his attorney's advice and turns his legal problems into political fights. And to put it mildly, he's not always very kind to his former associates and advisors, including many of his ex-lawyers. But our guest this week took the job anyway. He grew up in New Jersey, and he worshipped the larger-than-life New York criminal defense lawyers who were a staple of tabloid papers and cable TV in the 80s and 90s. People such as Eddie Hayes, the inspiration for Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, and Jerry Shargell, a criminal defense lawyer who worked for members of the Gambino crime family. One of his heroes and mentors was Bruce Cutler, who was John Gotti's famous lawyer. And he gave our guest a piece of advice that helps explain why he was dying to work for someone like Donald Trump. He had a philosophy of look for a fight, and if it's a good fight, get in it. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Timothy Parlatori spent over a year working for Trump on a number of legal challenges, including the Department of Justice's probe into Trump's role in January 6th and the investigation of all those documents stashed at Mar-a-Lago. Parlatori was inside the secret grand jury room in Washington. He oversaw the search for documents in Bedminster. He coordinated the former president's response to Jack Smith's subpoena for the national security files that eventually landed Trump in so much trouble. And then in May, after a long-running internal fight with one of Trump's top aides, Parlatori quit. Since then, you may have seen him on cable TV, talking about why he left the Trump team and offering his insights about the case. But he hasn't sat down for an in-depth interview like the one you're about to hear. Parlatori came by Politico's offices in Arlington, and we spent the afternoon talking about why he became a criminal defense attorney in the first place, the moral dilemmas he's faced representing people who he knew were guilty, and most important, what it was like being on the inside of Trump's legal team as Jack Smith and his prosecutors closed in. Do you think Trump is guilty in this case? On I don't I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I know that the information that I have seen does not indicate that. I know that there's a lot of stuff in this indictment that is not things I mean, he, that I've he, seen. He seems to have kept the documents. He seems did, to have But did he willfully retain them yeah. wrongfully within the meaning of the statute? You know, one thing that I'm a lawyer. I have nothing to do with the campaign, nor do I want anything to do with the campaign. I look at this solely from the perspective of should somebody go to jail? Right. No, that's why I like yeah. your perspective. And and yeah. so th- and so that's you know, I am not going to say do I think it was right? 
do I, you know, right, or, right. or anything else like that. I'm just going to say that as a, as a practitioner of the criminal law, yeah, my opinion of these things, do they warrant somebody going to jail? I have not seen anything that would warrant that. Um, then again, I have not seen the discovery in this case. It's, it's one of right. the reasons why when, you know, lawyers go on TV, knowing a hell of a lot less than me, make broad pronouncements that he's toast. Yeah. Yeah. I sit there and say, how can you possibly say that with a straight face if you are a real lawyer? Yeah. Because of anybody, I know the evidence better than any of them. And my answer is, when you ask me, is he guilty? Is he toast? I don't know. I would need to see the discovery. Yeah. Right, right. So you had this unique experience of being in the grand jury, and now that experience is forming the basis of what you think Trump's legal team um, should uh, use to um, accuse the government of misconduct. What, what happened in the grand jury that leads to that very, very strong allegation? Sure. So one thing that and, they— And just the date. When, when, when are you in there? December 22nd, I believe it was. And, you know, one of the things that they were doing is constantly trying to ask me about conversations that I had with the president. Didn't you put yourself in the position by going into the grand jury? Not at all. Not at all. I, <laughs> you yeah, volunteered for this. I, I did. I, I did. I volunteered to answer appropriate legal and ethical questions regarding uh, my firsthand knowledge of efforts to comply with the subpoena. When they decided to go beyond that and ask improper, unethical, unconstitutional questions about attorney-client privilege communications, that's when I shut it down. So you're in there to be. You're in there as the custodian of records, essentially. Yes. And they're asking you questions about you're representing Trump Correct. in the case. Correct. What and they ask? So we, they would ask me. You know, did you discuss this with with your client? What did he ask? What did you say? And every single time I said, no, if you're asking me about communications with the president, I'm not going to answer that question. That's that's privilege. And they would then turn to the grand. So you're refusing to provide this grand jury with that information. You're not going to tell them that. Like, In other words, instead of backing off and say and and and, and conceding. Correct. That you were that you were right. They were trying in front of the grand jury to make it seem like there was something inappropriate. Correct. Or at least acknowledging, okay, that's an invocation of privilege. We can litigate it later if we disagree about it. But instead, they Which is what you do at a deposition correct. or this kind of, okay. Correct. Instead, they persistently tried to uh, suggest to the jury that there was something inappropriate about that or that, that not answering that question was somehow a, an indication of guilt. We later looked at the transcript, which somehow they were stupid enough to actually give me a copy of. What, what, that's not the normal procedure? No. Really? <laughs> no, no, never. Huh. Um, they gave us a copy of the transcript as part of the sealed proceedings, which unfortunately it's under seal, so I can't give it to you. But we counted it up. And I know it's. it does sound like I made this number up. Forty-five times they tried to get at my attorney-client privilege communication. And 45 times you cited attorney-client privilege as the reason you're not going to answer that question. Correct. And um, if it had been 46, my client probably would have said, just say 45. But no, it really was 45. <laughs> um, 
Or he would have said do 47. Um, no, Donald Trump, he would have said say 1,000. <laughs> but no, it was, it was 45 times. And they continuously were trying to suggest improperly to the grand jury that there was some negative inference. And I kept pushing back on them and saying, no, it's not that I'm refusing or that I am withholding. I'm not allowed to answer that question. You know, the ethics rules prohibit me as an attorney from answering that question. It's an improper question. And at one point, it got it got so outrageous that I really started going after the prosecutor. And I said, it's an improper question. And I turned to the grand jury and I started explaining it to them. She knows that it's an improper question. You cannot ask an attorney about conversations with their client because that's privileged, even if it's something helpful. Even if I want to tell you the answer to this question, the ethical rules prohibit me. And so for her to even suggest that there's something wrong is improper. So she got all flustered. And she Did started, she allow you to make that comment to the grand jury? She had no choice. Yeah. Um, she got all flustered and she said, well, there are exceptions to the privilege rule, right? Yes, there are exceptions. For example, a client can waive privilege, right? Yes, a client can waive privilege. And if President Trump is being so cooperative, why won't he waive the privilege and let you tell this jury about your conversations with him? And I just kind of paused and I looked at us and I, and I said, are we really doing this? Hmm. And she said, I asked you a question. Are you really suggesting that for somebody to be cooperative, they're required to waive their constitutional rights? And at that point, she all of a sudden realized, uh-oh. I stepped in it. Hmm. And so she starts trying to back. Oh, I'm not suggesting. Yeah, you are. Because you just said to this grand jury, if he's being so cooperative, why won't he waive the privilege? It's something totally improper. And I started kind of turning tables around and cross-examining her more than, <laughs> than me uh, to the point where the other prosecutors actually had to jump in and, and start yelling at me and say, sir, sir, you're the witness. You're not allowed. like, okay, well, you're not allowed to do this. And you know it. I don't believe for one second that these prosecutors have been acting totally, properly, and ethically this entire time with all these other witnesses. And just because I walk in the room that I'm just, you know, so scary or something that I've, you know, intimidated them to completely dissemble and start violating rules. If anything, they should be on their best behavior when I'm in the room. So I suspect that when I'm not in the room, it's far worse. But that exchange right there is something that if it had happened in a trial setting, I wouldn't have had the pushback. Because the judge was... The judge would have declared a mistrial. <laughs> right there. A mistrial. Has um, this allegation about what went on with your grand jury testimony been presented to the um, pre-indictment phase judge overseeing the case or not? It, it, it has not been litigated. Um, it, it is something that was raised, uh, but as a collateral issue of... Um, just so you know, judge, when you're examining these things, you know, just know that these prosecutors are not playing by the rules. Um, but this was not something that we ever asked any judge to address. Um, it is 
certainly not something that's been addressed to the appellate court or anything like that, um, which is one of the reasons why I was a little bit disappointed. And you think for sure, you think the Trump team should uh, file a motion? Oh, absolutely. On it's, this. it's one of those things where any one instance doesn't make or break the case. Okay? Right, right. The fact that— You called look, it the other day, uh, death by a thousand— right, You think exactly. their strategy should be death by a thousand cuts. It is, because, because let's be honest here. Yeah, and the, I don't know what they're doing when I'm not in the room. Of course. But did that grand jury come away with an appearance, with a an impression that uh, my invocation of the constitutional right was you know, guilt? Probably not, because I pushed back the way that I did. Yeah. Um, but when you, and so that in and of itself is not necessarily going to invalidate the entire proceedings, but when you start to add all these up, yeah, you have all of these, you know, improprieties in my, uh, in the presentation of my testimony, all of the improprieties probably with the others, the improprieties of, you know, witness tampering, attempted witness tampering and extortion of a witness's attorney. Yeah. Lies told to federal judges in sealed proceedings, possibly lies told to federal judges in search warrant applications. All of these things add up to make one seriously question, you know, the validity of this case and and not, not, Validity is not the right word. Integrity is the right word. If we know that they're willing to do this to try to change one witness's testimony, what did they do with other witnesses? We don't know. So can you trust that all the witnesses are clean and unobstructed? We don't know. What other witnesses do we not know about? that maybe came in and they decided, well, we're going to hide that. Whenever you have a case that is being brought by prosecutors who have demonstrated a willingness to violate ethical rules, the entire case is questionable. And even if you have somebody that is completely guilty, you can't trust that case, and you certainly cannot reward the Department of Justice with a conviction when it is procured by their own misconduct. How did you come into this case? So I came into this case uh, through a series of events, and really my career— Someone told me I needed to really press you on this because it's a really interesting story. Yeah. It, it is kind of interesting because everything in my career has been, you know, one case builds off of another, which builds off of another. Yeah, I, I haven't really done a whole lot of advertising. It's a, it's a lot of referrals. The last few weeks you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so years ago, I represented Bernard Carrick. Um, and I represented him when he came out of jail uh, in, a, in litigation against his former attorney, uh, Joe Tacopina. <laughs> related to the issue of Joe Tacopina becoming a government cooperating witness against his own client. Got it. And so we litigated that case for a couple of years. It was, um, it was a very 
high tension case. Uh, there was a lot of media about it. Uh, and that led to other things. Certainly it led to me having a very close relationship with uh, Commissioner Carrick. Uh, and then, you know, among other things, that led uh, to him recommending that I be brought on to the uh, uh, Eddie Gallagher case, the uh, Navy SEAL accused of war crimes. Uh, I tried that case, uh, a one acquittal in that case. And it was something that happened during President Trump's uh, presidency and one that and he, he spoke about it. Yes. One that he took a personal interest in. How did he, um, well, now I'm putting these pieces together. How did he uh, take such a personal interest in that case? Because of uh, the appearances by Eddie's family on Fox and Friends. And, you know, the president heard that story directly from his wife, from his brother. Uh, he found it to be a compelling story and, you know, was not happy about the fact that, you know, one of our war fighters who had, you know, sacrificed so much through eight combat deployments was being treated this way. Was the goal getting them on Fox and Friends to make sure that the president knew about this? I, I think so. I mean, yeah. certainly that was it started before I got into the case. Yeah. Um, you know, I took over the case from a uh, from another lawyer who, um, in my opinion, had badly botched things. Uh, and so it, when I took it over, there was already uh, interest from the political side in the case. Got it. Uh, I did, you know, of course, to a certain extent. Um, use that to our advantage. You know, when there were things that I wanted to, um, the ultimate decision maker to know, yeah, I would go on Fox and Friends to say it because that's how, that was my only way of getting a message to the Oval Office. He wasn't going to take my call. <laughs> um, but ultimately, you know, that was a case where the evidence, you know, the charges were very damning, but the evidence didn't back it up. All right, so... So what's the first time you ever meet Donald Trump to talk about any of the legal issues that you've been involved in? Because you were involved um, before this case. Sure. So it, it came, somebody reached out to me in April of last year. Who reached out? Uh, it was Boris Epstein. Okay. Uh, and Your friend. It, yes. <laughs> um, and he asked, you know, would I be interested in um, in getting into this case? And Boris, you think, got your number from like... Bernie or? Uh, he actually got my number from uh, Eric Greitens, the former governor of Missouri. Oh, interesting. Um, who is also a former SEAL who I also represented on a couple of matters. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's funny. As a surface warfare officer, a guy who drove ships for a living, I've become so deeply embedded in the Navy SEAL community. <laughs> <laughs> um but so that, so that are, they, are you like to them was your service like bullshit like compared to what they were doing? Did they give you well, I wasn't kicking down doors, but, um, <laughs> but at the same time, they I think that they're more uh, interested in my service of keeping them out of jail. Got it. So, Got it. Um, so Boris calls you, and what's he, that conversation like? You know, he asked if I was interested in in doing some work uh, for the president, and I said, you know, I think that you know he has some legitimate. Legal issues. There what process? What part of the process is that? Is that? Did you say April of twenty twenty two? Yeah, April twenty two. Got it. Um, okay. So you know he's got some legitimate issues, and and you know there are certain things that I would be interested in doing. Certain At things that I point, was it more about January sixth, or was it the yes. documents? Oh no, the documents hadn't really that hadn't come up yet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. they hadn't even gotten the grand jury subpoena yet. Right, 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 right. right. 
right. Okay. Uh, so it was, it was the January 6th investigation. Um, I also agreed to work on the, uh, the 51 former intelligence officers right. who had written the, uh, the letter. Right. Um, yeah, discrediting the Hunter Biden laptop, which right, which Politico had a, a certain role in, I believe. I believe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, and and so I did. Got it. Okay. Um, this is one thing I haven't seen you talk much about. But what mm-hmm. can you tell us about what you learned about the January sixth investigation from the special counsel's office? So at the time, the January sixth investigation was being done by the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and you know, it was only what the November when when Jack Smith was appointed that everything kind of fell under him. Uh, and that investigation is a, is a bit different, uh, certainly a bit different than the documents investigation. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, for one thing, it's being investigated by the U.S. Attorney's Office as opposed to the National Security Division. Uh, and so while you may have heard me say in, in many interviews the, uh, you know, the prosecutorial misconduct and all this stuff, you know, with Jay Bratt and the National Security Division, you haven't heard me say that about the January 6th case at all. Why? I haven't seen anything in that case that would indicate that they're doing that. Uh, all of my dealings with the January 6th side of the house were professional were what one expects from dealing with a professional prosecutor. You know, Thomas Wyndham and I have had several conversations, and I don't, obviously I don't agree with them on everything. Uh, I think that some of the things that they're doing, you know, may be, you know, a bit excessive, but at the same time, I, I don't have, you know, differences of opinion are, are vastly different from saying, I think that they're breaking the rules. Got it. And I think that a lot of what I see in that investigation is, you know, they have to, you know, chase down all these leads, but it hasn't struck me as being something where uh, President Trump is even a target um, of that investigation. It does seem like they are, you know, trying to chase down a lot of these other, you know, pieces of it. And, yeah, you know, was there any connection, like a direct connection between the White House and, you know, the rioters? Um, you know, That's sim- something that they're trying to chase well, down. Well, it's something that they're trying to chase down, but I don't, you know, everything I've seen that there is no direct connection. You know, can you just simply rely upon, you know, a speech, you know, where portions of it they're using, you know, bellicose language, but other portions he's saying peacefully and patriotically, you know, we are the party of law and order, things like that. Yeah, that's not the kind of thing that's going to form the basis of a criminal charge. Um, but if you can, if you can make a connection of, you know, Donald Trump met with, you know, the leaders of the Proud Boys and said, I want you to storm the building and do this. Obviously, there's nothing there. But it's something that they were going to look into. And, you know, they're looking into all the other issues of, you um, you know, the alternate electors, was that appropriate or not? Right. Uh, and I think that, you know, there, you know, Congress kind of made the case for us that when they went to go amend, you know, the act, that it was vague enough. That it needed the loop, that there was a loophole that needed to be closed. Right. Do you it, think that they tacitly um, did uh, endorsed the Trump argument there? 
in a way, like certainly unwittingly, by saying that this is this needs to be clarified, that admits that yes, it's vague. And if it's vague, then you know, from the president's perspective, if you have a, a law professor coming to you and saying, "Sir, I'm a constitutional professor. I have researched this, and I believe you're allowed to do this." then there's not going to be any corrupt intent. Do you think Trump will be indicted? I don't think so. I think that it's... Um, then again, I didn't necessarily think he was going to be indicted in... You didn't? Okay, <laughs> in yeah. the Florida case either. So really? That, even at the even uh, up, up until the target letter uh, period? Even, you know... Like, well, I don't think there was a target letter. I mean, that's... And we, we can get oh, to we'll that, get to that in a minute. But I, I didn't believe that he would because... Um, in reading through the indictment, the section about um, you know Walt moving all those boxes and everything, the way that it's described in there was very different from what my understanding was at the time. Um, and so if the evidence is what they claimed in the indictment, then I can see why they indicted. If the evidence is a lot more ambiguous and maybe, you know, painting it in the light most favorable and ignoring, you know, other countervailing evidence, this is the theory that they've put forward, then they probably shouldn't have. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question of knowledge. Yeah. Um, and intent and timing too, because, you know, there was doc, there were certainly plenty of boxes that were willfully returned. And, and remember, the statute here is uh, willful retention of documents. And yet, during the time I was part of that case, every time a document was found, it was immediately willfully returned. All right. I want to, I, I want to get to that in a sure. second, but I was skipped over some stuff before we get into the, the nitty gritty. What's the first conversation you have with Donald Trump about the case? Conversations between attorney and client, I can't answer. Or when, when was it? Um, it was relatively soon after I, I joined. Let's, let's assume the crime fraud exception here. And, <laughs> and we can, uh, and, and, and we, you have my permission to, to talk about any of this. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the New York State Bar's permission to talk about this. All right. But the first conversation is back in a... Relatively soon after I joined the team. Yeah. Um, and at that point, the team looks like what? Who, who's on it? So when I joined, it was you know Evan Corcoran, John Rowley, myself, and Jim Trusty. And you know these guys previously? No, I'd never dealt with them previously. I mean, I certainly... I knew who Jim Trusty was, um, but I'd never dealt with them directly. Um, you know, over the course of the past year, Jim and I have become very close friends. Um, and I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed working with all those guys. You guys, you remain, you remain close with Jim? Oh yeah. Yeah. What was Boris's role in those early days when you, when you were first joining the team? He was the house counsel. Um, he was the person who, um, you know, oversaw everything we did. Yeah. Um, and was kind of the, He is a lawyer? He is. Yeah. He is. Um, and he kind of just... What kind of lawyer was he before this? He spent about 18 months as an associate in a big firm doing primarily banking transactions. So he's not uh, a criminal. He doesn't have any criminal defense background. Correct. 
Was that very clear to you as soon as you got to know him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was it bad with him right off the bat, or did his, your frustrations with him emerge over a period of time? You know, it, I spoke a little bit about this in the beginning when I uh, left the team. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the way that things went down with Boris is not something I really want to you know, belabor too much. Yeah, but let's just it, give us the, it, you know, we, you know need the, we need the broad, we need, need at least the broad uh, brushstrokes. As time, as time went on, it became, you know, and I'm not saying anything new, I haven't said it said before, but as time went on, it became more and more difficult to be able to do my job the way that I know how to do it um, because of, you know, all of these other um, political influences shall we say. But what's the political, I've heard you say that, but what are the political influences? You know, you have a, you have a client that's running for president. Yeah. And you have people involved who are banking transaction lawyers, um, you know, who are trying to dictate what the strategy is. And um, it, when you're fighting against DOJ, you need to have less impediments to it. You know, you need to have, you need to make sure that you are, um, you know, putting your best people out there to do their job. Um, and, you know, I kind of, I think of it in a different way. And I think about how, you know, Eddie Gallagher and his, um, and his SEAL platoon, how frustrating things have been because of you know very strict rules of engagement, and that after the um, yeah, after the change of administrations, that you know Secretary Mattis uh, under President Trump freed them to go do the job, and it became you know the rhetoric changed from you know, you know to you know to degrade ISIS to annihilate ISIS. And they knocked the hell out of ISIS. And, you know, and Eddie Gallagher was part of the Battle of Mosul to retake Mosul from ISIS. And so I, I kind of then very much liken that to how you have to fight a criminal case where do you want to send your people who are the professionals at fighting this type of a fight in with very restrictive rules that you put on them on how they can win for you. You know, do you want to, do we want to degrade Jack Smith or oh, this is going to sound really bad if I continue the analogy that way. Do we want to degrade <laughs> Jack Smith? <laughs> do we want to degrade Jack Smith's case? Not him personally, or do we want to annihilate Jack Smith's case? What doesn't make sense is of course it's in, everyone else's interest to annihilate that case. It's in the president's interest. It's in Boris's interest. So when I, so, so that's the one thing I don't quite get is um, why it was so hard to overcome the, these obstacles if what you're saying is you, you had this sort of path to annihilation here. Different personalities and um Different personalities have different ways of thinking 
Um, and everybody wants to be in charge, I guess. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The Post reported that um, Trump was told to give back the documents and didn't listen. What did you make of that report? The uh, the Washington Post story? Um, that was news to me. I mean, that, yeah, that... It says that Chris Keis is the one that was pushing that. Yeah. Chris Keis is a civil appeals lawyer. Um, he was essentially our local counsel when we did the special master uh, litigation down in Florida. Um, so for, I, I don't, I don't know where they got that story from, but, um, you know, that's not my experience with Chris Keis. Where do you think the story came from? I guess probably Chris Keis. <laughs> yeah. I, look, he's, he's a politically connected guy down there. I'm, I'm sure he's, you know has reasons for you know painting himself a certain way but um but ultimately you know that was not you know a discussion that I was a part of um you know nor was it something that we were at you know really at that type of a stage on um you know one thing that what's wrong with having advised the president to give back the documents isn't like you know it's like uh, the old Woody, Pe- Woody Woodpecker cartoon, you know, if Woody had gone straight to the police, none of this would have happened. <laughs> well, it, if he had just given back the documents, none of this would have happened. It's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that because... Um, more nuanced than the Woody Woodpecker? <laughs> I, I could use that in a closing <laughs> argument, I'm sure. But um, the issue is not just simply, you know, give them back or don't... You know, we're talking here about... You know, after after the uh, the raid, um, and, and yes, I use the word raid as much as DOJ doesn't like to use the word raid, um, but that is what law enforcement has called it for many many years. If they've recently changed the word, I don't know, but um, that's what you do when you get a search warrant. Um, after the raid, we had no reason to believe that any documents. We're still there. You know, the FBI had already gone through everything. And so, you know, the concept of give them back. Give what back? And then when DOJ did come to us and said, well, we think that there might be more documents. We would like you to, you know, to search these other places. Um, Including Bedminster. Including Bedminster. Um, Then it became... A, a legal strategy discussion of the subpoena is dead. You know? The, the grand su- jury subpoena? About the grand, the right. The grand, ju- the grand jury subpoena because it had a it had a compliance date on it and that date had passed. 
And it was something that when Evan had the initial conversation and said, I need more time to be able to do everything, the DOJ said, no, it must be complete by this date. And, you know, if, if I have a grand jury subpoena from three years ago, I don't still have, you know, these things don't live forever. You have an obligation under the subpoena. And once that obligation is fulfilled, once the date has come, you know, so there was, there was a, a there was an argument that the subpoena is dead. And if they want more searches, they should give us a new subpoena. And then there was a the counter to that argument of, if you really fight them on that, are they going to give us a new subpoena or are they going to give us a new search warrant? Um, and so that's that's why we had discussed, why don't we do more of these searches voluntarily? Um, we don't concede that the subpoena still has force. But at the same time, as a show of good faith, let's go search Bedminster. Okay. And, and the client agreed with that. He did. Yes, he did. He did. He authorized us to search Bedminster. I hired a team. I oversaw it. I organized it. I sent the team to search Bedminster. They were not given any restrictions. They were not given any directions of you may go here, you may not go there, or anything like that. We did that search. We didn't find anything in Bedminster. And then we wrote it up and presented a full report on everywhere we searched and everything we did to the court as part of our, you know, as part of this. And that's public. Parts of it are, I mean, what I've told you is, is what is public. Um, I would assume that at some point in the near future, a lot of the sealed proceedings before the, uh, the DC district would become unsealed. Yeah. Uh, in which case I can speak more about it. Um, but that was a strategy that we employed, you know, to show that we didn't have anything to hide. Um, but there was no, there was no, uh, government, um, assistance in that search. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good question. You didn't have a, you didn't have one of Brat's guys accompanying you. We asked for that. You did. We asked you asked Jay Brat to send a couple of FBI agents to observe so that if anything was found, we could hand it right off to them. We asked for the FBI to be there because one of the reasons why we wanted the FBI to be there was so that they could observe how transparent, open, and helpful we're trying to be here. And so that they could never then turn around and say, oh, you didn't do a good search. Yeah. Jay Brett refused. They declined the invitation to send FBI agents to observe the search. So we did it anyway. Wasn't that a bad sign if they're, if they're declining there? That means that like, they're not, they don't believe you guys anymore. No, I took it. I actually took it the opposite way. I took it as, you know, the, um, you know, they, they, they knew that we were going to do the search and they, they didn't, um, you know, they, they didn't want to get involved with it. And they kind of recognized that this was a dying thing. Remind me what's the search is done when, what's the date? October. October. Okay. Boris didn't want, Boris was an obstacle to the search. Uh, this is something I've spoken about previously that, um, he didn't want us to do the search. Why? I don't know. That's a question for him, but, um, he was, he and Chris Keis were of the camp of don't do the search, which is why it's so funny that, you know, that now everybody's, you know, printing that Chris Keis is the one who 
went the other way. But right. But ultimately, like I said, that was a that was an issue of does it make more sense to voluntarily do the search to show that we're compliant, or does it make sense to fight against the subpoena and say you know subpoena's dead? Um, and ultimately, what we did was the compromise version, which is subpoena's dead, but even so, we decided to voluntarily do this anyway to show that we have nothing to hide. Um, so that that was the compromise that we reached. Kais came into this case as Boris's attorney after Boris got his phone taken away? No, that's Todd Blanche. Excuse me. Okay, I'm <laughs> confusing the characters. I apologize. Let's talk about Blanche for a sec. Todd Blanche, mm-hmm. who was in the courthouse in Miami this week, came into the case as Boris Epstein's attorney. Correct. Because Boris had his... Boris was potentially a target of this investigation at one point, right? Probably, yes. <laughs> he, had his, he had his cell phone seized. Correct. Um, and now Todd Blanche is, you know, at least until they find someone else, one of the one of the main lawyers defending the president in this case. Mm-hmm. How did uh, how did Blanche go from being Boris's lawyer to being the president to being former President Trump's lawyer? That would be a question for Todd and Boris. <laughs> um, yeah, we got to get them on here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that, that unfortunately is not something that I had any visibility on. Um, I know that Todd took over the. Uh, the New York case first, um, you know, the Bragg, I, the Alvin Bragg case, right? Um, which I was in favor of. Okay. Um, but um, and then how he took over the, uh, you know, the documents case. I, I guess when Jim and John left, you know, last man standing. I guess I don't know. So, so Jim and John leave at a very unusual time. <laughs> The day, of, the day of the day of the indictment, and Boris's lawyer uh, suddenly takes over. Do you think it presents any conflict of interest for Todd Blanche that he's Boris's lawyer one day and then he's Trump's lawyer the next day? There is certainly a potential for a conflict of interest there. However, um, what the courts do in those situations is they. Um, Different circuits call it different things. I'm not sure what they call it down the, in the 11th, but in the second circuit, we call it a cursio hearing. Uh, cursio hearing is when there's a potential conflict of interest. They have a hearing where, you know, the government will present um, what they believe to be the, um, you know, the, the basis for a conflict. Got it. The government would have to raise this as an issue. Right. And, and so, I mean, I've gone through many of these myself. Yeah. It's something that's fairly common um, in multi-defendant cases or, you know, when, yeah. you know, it, very common in the, uh, in the um, organized crime world. Um, in fact, you know, Gus Curcio, the original case came from that, where the government will say, you know, your attorney has also represented this witness or whatever the conflict is. Yeah. Uh, and make sure that the client uh, has has given a knowing and voluntary waiver of the client uh, of the uh, conflict on the record. Uh, and they do that because if they don't hold that hearing, it's a potential issue for an appeal later. Right. Do you, were you surprised um, that Boris was not one of the defendants or that he was not indicted? Um, or that he was not the target of uh, this investigation? 
I was at surpri- least that we don't know. I was surprised that President Trump and Walt were indicted. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that um, there was anything, I mean, again, what I saw during my time there, yeah, indicated that no crime had been committed. Um, so, I'm not going to say that I was surprised that additional people weren't indicted. Um, All right. Let no, go ahead. So, your thought. Yeah. Well, I was going to say something uh, different. I was going to say, except for perhaps Jay Brad. I'm surprised he was. <laughs> we'll get to that in but. a second. We'll get to that in a second. Let's talk about the indictment. Um, let's start, the morning you read the indictment, what was the thing that surprised you the most? What was the part where you're like, oh, shit, I didn't know about that? <laughs> it was it was the allegations about Walt moving 60 boxes. And only returning 30-something. Uh, and only returning 30-something. You know, that whole exchange there. Um, surprised me. They're basically alleging Trump and Walt, they know Evan's coming to right. do the search and they're pulling the wool over Evan's eyes. Right. So, that, I mean, that would, you know, from the, as you say, the oh shit, um, from the perspective of something I was surprised at, oh wow, that's a problem. Yeah. That was the, the part of it that was the most surprising to me. Um, yeah, of course, I immediately then sit there and think, um, if they had that, why didn't they use that at an earlier stage? In like a grand jury proceeding, or what do you mean? Well, in a, in a in an effort to try to um, you know to get a a pre arrest plea. Oh, I in see. an effort to convince Walt to become a cooperating witness. I mean, that, that's really the biggest thing is I was sitting there thinking, and I know we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but, um, you know, their tactic of, you know, threatening Stan Woodward with the, um, an application that he made to be a judge. Yeah. This is what, this is when, this is the allegation that Woodward, that Stan Woodward has against Jay Brat. Jay Brat. Yeah. They're in a meeting. Correct. So well, and, and Woodward is has currently has an application to be a federal judge, and it's raised in some correct. way by Brat. Let me let me yeah. tell you let me tell you the tale of two meetings. Yeah. but wait, just to answer your sure. question, there isn't the answer to that. They don't need Walt. They've got him dead to rights. They have all the evidence. They don't need him. One, I mean, that certainly is is one way of looking at it. But they really wanted him. They did. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was clear. Besides, look, there's nothing, there's no evidence better than to have somebody who is formerly very close and loyal to stand up and say, in the courtroom and point at the defendant and say, he's right over there. He's the one that did it. Yeah. Um, But so. They tried to flip Walt, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and they tried really hard to flip him. But here's the thing. And this is what I'll call the tale of two meetings. Yeah. The way that you flip Walt the way a professional prosecutor would do it is they call Stan Woodward into a meeting and they do what they call a reverse proffer session. They say, Stan, here's, here's the problem with your client. We got him dead to rights. They're going to take those few paragraphs out of the indictment and they're going to tell him, this is what we have. And they're going to have a folder and they're going to say at this time, here you go. Here's the phone record showing that they had this communication at this time. Here you go. Here's the screenshot from the surveillance video, they're going to show him 
step by step this entire transaction. They're going to say to him, your guy's going away for a very long time. He has an opportunity to save himself. You're, you know, Walt is at a crossroads. He needs to make a choice. That is the way to effectively convince somebody to become a cooperating witness. Yeah. And it's very effective. It's something that U.S. attorney's offices have used countless times. You've been in those sessions? Sure I have. Yeah. Absolutely. So you come out of them making a decision like, yeah, yeah. yeah or nay. Like, exactly. Yeah. Now let me tell you the tale of another meeting. Stan, we never took you for a Trump guy. We understand you have this application in for judgeship. In fact, it's on Joe Biden's desk right now. If you want it to be looked upon favorably, you need to convince Walt to change his story. Wait a second now. Uh, you're not saying you're dramatizing a little bit when you when you quote that. You it was that explicit. My understanding is it was that explicit. Now, I wasn't in the meeting. But my understanding is how would this meeting have been memorialized? So, in other words, when this is when this is litigated, and I know mm -hmm. it's being litigated, it's under seal. um, How is what? How we going to how we going to figure out who's who's uh, telling the truth here about what went down? So there are multiple people in that room, yeah, who can give eyewitness testimony of what happened. My understanding is that there will also be documentary proof that. Jay Brett, you know, knew about, had researched, and had proof of the judicial application. This is like what we talked about the other day, right? And in, 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 in playbook that there could, in the discovery sure. process, they're going to be looking. They're yeah. going to they're going to subpoena any communications, any notes, Correct. any internal communications about. Hey, let's find out more about this guy's judgeship right. process. Because here's the yeah. thing, yeah. is that, you know, obviously, as you pointed out, I've given a dramatization. Of, of <laughs> there's the no meeting. transcript. I, yeah. No, there's no transcript. But here's the thing. You know, that may be the most uh, damning version of it. Um, but there's not an innocent version of it. There is no circumstance. You know, Jay Brack can say whatever he wants about, oh, I wasn't trying to make it a quid pro quo. I wasn't doing this. Why can't no. you shoot the shit about like, hey, we're both lawyers. I heard you. I heard you. Uh, I heard you go up for a federal judgeship. That's cool. <laughs> well, is there an innocent explanation? No, there's not an innocent explanation. Why would somebody from the special counsel's office, National Security Division of DOJ, have any information whatsoever about Stan Woodward? putting in an application for a D.C. Superior Court judgeship that is so far outside of the bounds of his job. Now, if he... By the way, what's the status of this thing? Oh, I have no idea. It seems like he's probably got to get it now. I mean, you'd think. <laughs> you'd think. But um, if he still wants it. Um, I mean, but if, if, if instead it was, hey, I saw that you were applying to join DOJ... You know, I, I heard you. I heard you're you're looking for a job to join us. Okay, now that's shooting the shit. I read a newspaper article where you're you know you're talking about you know doing whatever. Um, yeah, I read a newspaper article. You're now representing you know some football team or something like that. Yeah, yeah. There is no innocent explanation of how Jay Brett would have this piece of information and why it would come up during a meeting where the purpose of the meeting is to try and convince him to get Walt to become a cooperator. And everyone agrees that was the purpose of the meeting. Yeah, well, yeah. Absolutely. Like There's, the Brat, the DOJ won't, they won't, as far as you know, they will, they will or have not disputed that part. 
Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, Because they've responded to the complaint, I assume, under seal, or we don't know. That happened after I left. Yeah. So, um, but there's no innocent explanation. No matter how much you can try to, you know, oh, it wasn't that, it was this, and I didn't really mean it to be a quid pro quo, you said it. You researched it and you said it. On the process of this, this is all pre-trial, this is all pre, uh, this is all what? What do we call the period before the indictment? A pre-indictment. All right. There's a all grand jury phase. Grand jury phase. Um, the judge in that case who's who's got this complaint before him or her, Howell? Mm-hmm. Uh, Boesberg. Boesberg. Howell's gone. Right. Okay. They still have to um, make a decision on it? Or now that there's been an indictment, it will all be litigated within the confines of, of, uh, of the Florida uh, jurisdiction. Correct. There's no further grand jury action in D.C. And so I would predict yeah. that Judge Bosberg may um, deny the motion as moot and essentially transfer it over. Got it. Got it. And that will be the subject of a motion. Correct. As we talked about the other day, this will be a, clearly be a, a very important motion Correct. for the Trump team. You still believe that, right? I do. Yeah. In terms of the, let's we'll go through some of these the weaknesses of the, of the case that as we discussed re- recently. In terms of motions that they will file to discredit the case, would you say that this is the most important one? I think so. Yeah. Um, I think that, and, and it's not just this one story. It's a pattern. Yeah. It, it's a it's a pattern throughout. I think that when they get the unredacted version of the search warrant application. I suspect they're going to be able to find material misrepresentations of fact in there. When they get the unredacted version of some of these uh, hearings that we had uh, in the you know, in the grand jury litigation, I suspect that they're going to be able to have some material misrepresentations of fact there. When they get some of the grand jury transcripts, I know that the transcript of, of my grand jury appearance. Yeah. Now, why did you go into the grand jury? So, because otherwise you would not be there as a lawyer. You're, correct. You're, there's no uh, right. I've yeah. never been in front of a grand jury before it until was, this. It was a totally new experience right, for so me. Because I was never a prosecutor. I never got to go in that room. <laughs> um, so, so why were you there? So the original subpoena, yeah, uh, that asked, yeah, you know, that Evan and Christina Bob responded to, it was actually addressed to the custodian of records for the office of Donald J. Trump. Okay, um, and that. That's an important legal point because it is unconstitutional to give somebody a subpoena asking them to give you contraband. You know, a subpoena to Joe Smith for all of the cocaine that you possess is an unconstitutional violation of the Fifth Amendment. Got it. Okay. But the Fifth Amendment protections don't apply to organizations. Oh, interesting. And so the reason why that original subpoena was sent to the office of Donald J. Trump, which is a an entity that is created by statute yeah. under the former President's Act. Uh, and in, in a weird way, it is a quasi-government agency. Yeah, yeah. Um, the reason why they sent the subpoena to that organization is because if they if they sent a subpoena to Donald Trump... It's got Fifth Amendment problems. It, it's an invalid subpoena. So, got it. Okay. So it required... So someone's got to represent the office. Correct. And and how did that job go to you? Well, I, I volunteered for <laughs> I thought this for was it. Boris's job. <laughs> uh, no, we didn't want any perjury. 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, Boris is going to call me up. He's going to love that. that. I'm, I'm kidding. Do you guys that. still talk? Uh, I'm infrequently. Um, but Has he asked you to tone it down? <laughs> I, I'm not going to get into <laughs> that. Um, here's, here's the problem. My Before I answer this question, the interactions with Boris and kind of all the drama surrounding Boris, um, to me, that's not a legal issue. That's more of a political issue. Oh, of course. And, and that's why it's something that I don't really want to try to fuel as much as I can. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not, I'm not, yeah, Boris and I don't get along. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do him any favors. I'm not afraid of him or anything like that. But at the same time, it's not in the client's best interest to keep belaboring that point. Um, I chose to go into this grand jury because they wanted a custodian of records. They really wanted some staffer from down in Florida. Uh, the government did. Right. The government did. Yeah. Uh, that they could beat up on, you know, did you did search they have here? Anyone in mind? No. They didn't have a specific person. In no, okay. no. They, they wanted somebody to come in that they could beat up on, you know, did you search here? Did you search there? And then they could say, I don't know. I don't know. And then they could paint it as look how noncompliant they're being. But ultimately, what they wanted was they wanted a custodian of records who could speak with personal knowledge about efforts made to comply with the subpoena. We sat and discussed it, and nobody had better knowledge of that than me, because I was the one who organized and oversaw the search teams. And so while it is certainly abnormal uh, for an attorney to you know, to fill that role, uh, we... Because, especially because we were so confident in the um, in the manner in which we conducted our searches, uh, we made a tactical decision that the best way to address this is for me to go in and talk to them. Got it. Um, and additionally, I mean, just parenthetically, the defense attorney never gets to talk to the grand jury. And so it was kind of an interesting opportunity to actually go in and explain things to the grand jury that, the government was not right, right, and so there were you, yeah. there were strategic and tactical reasons why we ultimately decided that I would do it. Got it. Um, the government did not want me. Got so did they fight it? Oh yeah, yeah. And they said, "Oh, this is bullshit. He's not the custodian of records." I, well, I yes, because we said the organization does not have a custodian of records, and so we're sending Tim instead. And then they're like, oh, wait a second. We can't have a defense attorney in the grand jury. Correct. Who knows what he could drop Correct. on these guys? We, you know, they had given us a date and a time. And I reached out to them to say, you know, understand, you know, we're talking about, you know, Friday. I have some child care issues. You know, can we move the start time, you know, half hour to the right? And they said, you know, don't come in. We don't want you. Um, a little bit more lawyerly than that. But um, yeah, essentially they said, you know, your presence is not required okay and then we went back and forth in a sealed proceeding that i can't get into right now um but when it gets unsealed i can answer the questions it's in the how correct okay um and they were put into a corner where they had to let me in and so i did did the was the final determination made by the the, the judge in that case based on a motion um, it's not that clean. Not that clean. <laughs> Got it. Okay. It, it's not that clean, but essentially it, it boxed them in where they really didn't have a choice. They, they, did, they, they, did they simply accept it at a certain point? 
Correct. They had to. Got it. Um, so, so I went in and I went to explain everything we'd done at, um, at compliance and really to lay out for them, as I said earlier, this is a case about willful retention. And yet what the actual pattern was, was willful return. And what the evidence was to show that there was not even any knowing possession of any of these documents, that everything we found, you know, the manner in which it was found, where it was, how it was stored, was all indicative that nobody knew it was there. And so that's uh, that's what I went in. Did they present you with any evidence during your grand jury appearance that surprised you? <laughs> there was, uh, there, yes, there was one little uh, funny gotcha moment Um where you know we had searched, um, I think it was six six storage units at Mar-a-Lago. At, at, no, in, in a in oh, a um, in a private storage facility in um, a commercial storage facility down in Palm Beach. There were six storage units that were, you know, that belonged to you know the entity that had you know documents and materials from the White House. And you sure it was six? Yes, I'm sure it was six. Sure it wasn't seven. Yes, I'm sure it wasn't seven. Why did you only search six? And me being a lawyer, I know where this is going. And I, I just kind of looked at the press and said, okay, look. <laughs> why don't we skip all the theatrics? If you got a gotcha question, why don't we just skip ahead, straight ahead to that? Are you telling me that there's a seventh unit? Well, uh, uh, yes. Okay, tell me about it. And, which, by the way. Me asking her questions is totally not the way it works. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so I'm asking her questions and then, and she's saying, you know, there's this other unit that was rented on this day. And I'm like, okay, let's take a break and I'll go find out. Took a break, went to find out. Turns out that there was another unit in this storage unit that was rented by the CFO of the Mar-a-Lago club to store extra furniture. <laughs> they subpoenaed all the records and, from the storage company. Yeah, that's how they got that. Yeah, and so they, they uh, the gotcha moment for them was that they that the Mar-a-Lago Club had a uh, had a storage unit full of furniture that I had not searched because the Mar-a-Lago Club has nothing to do with the office of Donald J. Trump. Got so it. that was uh, as far as like you know gotcha questions. Yeah, that was the most surprising. Where'd you go to law school? Brooklyn Law, uh, and of course, you know, sat there in the auditorium as the as the dean gets up and says, "Welcome to law school. Law school is nothing like college. This next year will be the most stressful experience of your life." Little did they know what would happen in twenty twenty three for you. <laughs> well, I just I just sat there in the auditorium and I looked around and I thought every one of my classmates actually believed what she just said. <laughs> oh, as you were saying, you just came from like these deployments. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and for them it was. Right. Right. Not, so, so not a lot of uh, fellow vets in it. No, not at that time. You know, yeah. that was um, what the fall of 05. Um, and so there weren't, um, there weren't that many veterans there. Um, also, you know, Brooklyn Law School, you know, the, the New York City is not exactly the hotbed for where a lot of veterans are going. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I chose Brooklyn Law because I wanted to get into doing criminal defense. Okay, I was going to ask you that. So when did you know that you wanted to do uh, criminal defense? 
It was actually something that came to me when I was at the academy. So I was a junior, and my best friend got in trouble. Um, and it was a situation where it started out as a joke, got blown way out of proportion, and all of a sudden the admiral's getting ready to kick him out. Huh. And so he and I sat down, and I you know went through the regulations, and I built a defense for him. Uh, and and I said, this is what you need to do. And he said, that's great, Tim. I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> so, and you're and you, when, when you what he needed to do in terms of specific administrative correct process and correct. arguments. And so I went up with him to meet with the uh, with the JAG officer, who's the advisor to the commandant, um, and he thought it was incredibly funny that these you know two midshipmen came up to see him, and and I just laid it out for him. I said, you know, the conduct alleged here doesn't fit within this regulation, but it much more f- readily fits within this regulation over here. So my proposal is he accepts responsibility for this violation, which is a, a lower, you know, what they call battalion-level discipline, um, and therefore not subject to expulsion. And so, you know, he, he said that, you know, that makes sense to me. I'll recommend it to the admiral. You know, a couple of days later, we got notification. He was, you know, restricted to his room for about a month. He had to, you know, go out like thirty times and march in a square carrying his rifle for an hour. Um, and today, he just finished a tour as the commanding officer of the Navy's newest guided missile destroyer, and he is now the XO of uh, one of the most advanced destroyers in the world. Holy shit! So he was going to be kicked out. He was going to be kicked out. And it was in that moment that I realized, yeah, I wanted to be a military officer. And I thought I'd be okay at it. But I realized in that moment, this is something that I have a real talent for. And it's also something that I just saw how I was able to save my best friend's career. And that that's very satisfying to me. And so that's that was really when I kind of shifted my whole focus away from, you know, just wanting to sail around the world to kill people and break things to, I want to use my ability to understand the law and to explain it and develop that skill and use it to help people. Fascinating. Was Brooklyn Law, uh, do they have a particularly good criminal uh, law school or was, was what was the choice there you said you wanted the, to go to Brooklyn you wanted right. to be in a different place was the, the what's true, the criminal defense program like there the true strength of Brooklyn Law School is in the alumni network because a lot of the greats of the New York City criminal defense bar were all Brooklyn Law School graduates who are they uh, it was Bruce Cutler. Like Jerry. the guys who defended like mobsters and Bingo. politicians was, that got in trouble. Exactly. Because I, I grew up in Long Island, so I remember all these characters yeah. on TV. All C- the guys. Cutler, from, did he defend Gotti? Yes, all the guys from the John Gotti trials. They were all. These uh, were your heroes. They were. And, <laughs> and, and the, thing that, the thing that put it over the top, Jerry Shargell, was a, he was you know full practicing attorney, but he also was an adjunct professor. At Brooklyn. Tell me who he is. Right, right so J- Jerry Shargell, he was one of the attorneys in the Gotti trials, um, and he's one of the most accomplished. He passed away this past year, unfortunately, but he's one of the most brilliant and accomplished attorneys in the New York City um, you know, criminal world. You got to know him? 
I did. I did. I, I took all of his classes. I learned a tremendous amount because as opposed to the, you know, the traditional full-time law professor that talks about a lot of the, the theory in the textbook, he came in and said, okay, here's the rule. Now let me tell you a story about how I used it. And, you know, years later, I got to actually do some cases as co-counsel with them. And it, it was really such a tremendous learning experience um, you know, to be in his class. And that, that's really why I chose that school. But let me ask you a question. Yeah. Your friend, I'm, the, the way you told the story, it seems like he was maybe railroaded and great satisfaction in helping him get a lesser, lesser punishment. What's the attraction to the, 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 the gaudy uh, defenders of, of, of the world? Now, because they're the best. Got it. Because they are the the absolute best at the criminal defense game, and they did it in the biggest cases at the time. Got it. Where the the pressure was the highest and the spotlight was the hottest. Yeah. And, you know, so I I didn't want to just, you know, have a a career of doing, you know, volume of DWIs, things like that. I, I wanted to be able to do something that was impactful and different and interesting. And so... Learning from them yeah. was the best possible experience I could ever get. Final thing. Sure. If the issues that were uh, that caused you to leave the case were in some way resolved and Donald Trump called you tomorrow and said, Tim, I want you back in here. I've taken care of Boris and the other stuff that you had a problem <laughs> with. Would you, uh, would, you, would you go back to work on this case? I would be open to a discussion about it. Yeah. Um, I, I would be open to a discussion about it. I, yeah, it's not, it's not a very simple yes or no. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I do think that there are serious issues, you know, in this case that affect not only him, but, you know, this country as a whole. Uh, and I think it's a worthwhile case to have competent counsel, um, fighting for. And he doesn't have that right now, does he? I don't know. Um, yeah, I I don't know much about you know Todd or you know what he um, what he plans to do here. But I know that you know they've been searching for you know additional counsel to bring in. I don't like the idea that people don't want to represent somebody just because of their political beliefs. You know, if somebody has a case, you know, then they should have competent counsel. And, and I've said this to a lot of people. You know, I haven't said it on the record yet. But I'll do it here. Um, if Joe Biden called me tomorrow and said, look, I want your help with the, her investigation of my boxes in Delaware. We would negotiate, obviously, the engagement, but I would say Yes. I don't pick my clients based on what the letter after their name is. And and so I would be, in fact, I actually, back several years ago um, in 2018, when I founded my firm, one of the things that I wrote into our partner manual was that we are not to be a political firm. We will represent clients on either side of the aisle, but we will fight those cases based on the facts and the law and not the politics. We should not discriminate. And I actually wrote in there, 
that we should be just as comfortable representing Hillary Clinton as we would Donald Trump. Having no clue back in 2018 that four years later, one of those hypotheticals would not be so hypothetical. Um, you know, so I, I would encourage all of the lawyers down in Florida that are being interviewed on this, that, um, if you can find a way to be comfortable, you know, representing the client under, under these conditions, you know, he does need, you know, competent counsel. And, you know, as you and I spoke about the other night, you know, counsel is the last thing that an accused should lack in a free country. Tim, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Fascinating discussion. And we'll, uh, we'll do it again soon. All right. Thank Take, you very much. Thank you. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thanks to David Toledo for the editing help this week. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.